This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode of Oppo is brought to you in part by FreshBooks, the unbelievably easy-to-use cloud accounting software. FreshBooks saves you more time by taking care of all the agonizingly boring accounting details you keep putting off. How much time will FreshBooks save you? On average, users save up to 192 hours per year, and it helps you get paid quicker. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day free trial for listeners of Oppo. Just go to freshbooks.com oppo and enter oppo, O-P-P-O, in the how did you hear about us section. Oppo is also brought to you by HelloFresh. Achieving your 2019 goals is as easy as enjoying delicious home-cooked meals with HelloFresh. HelloFresh makes conquering the kitchen a reality with super easy recipes. They do all the planning, shopping, and prepping, so you can focus on enjoying the new year and a healthier you. Get top-rated seasonal recipes and pre-measured ingredients delivered right to your door every single week so that you can enjoy cooking and sticking to your goals. Get 50% off your first box of HelloFresh. Visit hellofresh.ca slash oppo50 and enter oppo50, O-P-P-O-5-0. From Canada land, this is Oppo. This week, it's China all the time. China all the time, China all the time, China all the time. What of Eddie Murphy's lesser known hits? <laughs> Ever since Canada acquiesced to an American arrest warrant for Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou in December, things have gotten weird between Beijing and Ottawa. Wow. Acquiesced is an interesting word choice there, Justin. Why not just call us American imperialist running dogs while you're at it? Too many syllables. Uh, fair, it's wordy. So, we're going to try and make sense of this all. And to do so, we spoke to two folks who know a heck of a lot more about China than we do. Hold on tight, because things are about to get contextualized. Right Mao. Right Chairman Mao. Ooh, bad pun. <laughs> so, take it from me, one of the biggest burdens for any freelancer is the paperwork, the invoicing, the receipts, keeping track of your HST. It is so time consuming and I absolutely hate it. Luckily, 
I use FreshBooks and it actually makes things better. It saves me time so I can actually focus on writing stories and being yelled at on Twitter so I don't have to worry about keeping all my paperwork in order and sending all of my very late invoices. Accounting tasks are a huge time waster. They might not be difficult, but they're just inane and I hate them. I do not want to have boxes of receipts all over my apartment and I don't like keeping massive spreadsheets because honestly, I don't keep it up to date. That's where FreshBooks comes in. On average, FreshBooks accounting software saves users up to 192 hours a year and it makes everything just so much easier. The beauty of FreshBooks is that there's really no learning curve, so you can jump right in. It's super intuitive. Also, it's almost tax season, which is a horrifying reality for me. And FreshBooks makes all of that so much simpler. If that's not incentive enough, we're offering a free 30-day trial of FreshBooks for all of our listeners. Go to freshbooks.com oppo and enter OPPO in the how did you hear about us section. So, Jen, I'm going to confess, I am no China expert. So, as all of this news has been breaking, I've been trying to get a handle on it, like trying to grab onto a demented news carousel. So, over the past few days, I've been trying to, you know, learn the entire history of China, no biggie. But to help out, I rung up James Moore. He was Stephen Harper's Minister of Culture and Industry. Now he's Chancellor of the University of Northern British Columbia, and he does some other stuff too. And Jen, I know you spoke to David Mulroney, the former ambassador from Canada to China from 2009 to 2012, and now he's one of the better known China watchers in the country. So I think we're somewhat set, but to start us off, give us a rundown, Jen. You've been prepping this. Try to remind me what I need to know about the current clusterfuck of Canada-China relations. Okay, so for those of you who have not necessarily been paying super close attention to what the hell has been going on with this absolute dumpster fire of a diplomatic mess, it all began in early December when we, at the request of the Americans, arrested Meng Wanzhou, the CFO of Huawei. We have a treaty with the U.S. whereby we can arrest someone on their behalf and at their request and then begin with extradition proceedings. Wangzhou has been accused of defrauding financial institutions in breach of U.S. sanctions in Iran. Yeah, obviously China not super stoked about that. No, they did not take this very well. They responded essentially by arresting two Canadians living in China, um, people named Michael Spavor and former diplomat Michael Kovrig. We can safely presume that conditions for these two men are not great. And meanwhile, a convicted drug trafficker named uh, Robert Schellingberg has had his sentence summarily upgraded from jail time to the death sentence. And this is, again, pretty safely, presumably, as punishment for what we've done to Miss Wangzhou. That is a hell of an upgrade. Yeah, uh, and not the good kind. That's not like going from first class, no. No. Meanwhile, we've got the Chinese ambassador to Canada accusing this country of white supremacy because of its detention of um, Miss Wangzhou. Meanwhile, the rhetoric has become superheated. We've got, you know, Chinese media shitting all over us as a country. We've got the Chinese ambassador to Canada accusing this country of white supremacy in its detention of Miss Wangzhou. And Canada has tried to defend itself through all of this by asserting that, you know, we're just simply following the rule of law. You know, we're, we're following through on our bilateral treaty obligations to the U.S. This is probably true, but it's a claim that really hasn't held up too well in the political realm because Donald Trump has threatened to use Miss Wangzhou as a pawn in his trade negotiations with China. And now there's been this enormous flap with Canada's now fired ambassador to China, John McCallum. Yeah, he's obviously our first big casualty of this, you know, months long spat between Beijing and Ottawa and RIP John, I guess. So the McCallum stuff's right at the top of the news. So I think that we should just explain to our listeners what's happened here. A few weeks ago, McCallum comes out and does this bizarre 40 minute press conference, but only with Chinese language media and basically lays out Wang Zhou's extradition case for her, which is a position that is seemingly massively at odds with the government's whole line on the file. Yeah, here's Ottawa saying, we're just following the rule of law. It's up to the Americans. We're just going with our extradition treaty. And here's John McCallum saying, oh yeah, it's all political. She'll probably be fine. We'll let her off. Don't worry about it. 
So he probably should have been fired right then and there, and it kind of raised some eyebrows that he wasn't. He then walks back those comments, apologizes the con- for the, all the confusion on the file. But then, a couple of days ago, a Vancouver Star Metro reporter gets him to go on the record saying that it would be super great if the U.S. and China could just cut some kind of backroom deal to drop the extradition altogether and release our citizens in the process. No problem. Needless to say, you can't go on about how your country respects the rule of law above all on one hand and then have your like own ambassador talk about cutting deals on the other. So McCallum was finally asked to resign a few days ago. Yeah, and it really, unusually for this sort of situation, they didn't even do the pretense of pretending as though he chose to resign himself. They made it pretty clear that Trudeau fired him. So this whole confusing mess really raises a question for me, and that is, Justin, was McCallum going off script as some kind of rogue ambassador? Or was he entirely on script and is now being thrown under the bus? It's a really good question, and I don't think I have the answer. I'm inclined to say he was off script. I mean, John McCallum was hired for this very specific job in China, and it's very different from the job that he's now he was doing until he was fired, right? He was in China to play nice. He was in China basically to strike up conversations about a free trade agreement. And then suddenly over the last you know month, he gets shuffled into to doing defense and basically consular services for a bunch of Canadians who have been arrested in a diplomatic row. I mean, it's very hard to change those gears, I think. And I think that John McCallum was still very much playing the role of, you know, I'm Beijing's best friend here. And it kind of got caught in the middle. And I think that that's what ultimately he fucked up. And and I actually got to talk to James Moore about this. We talked just before John McCallum got fired. But he seemed to think that, yeah, this was kind of just a slip of the tongue or just a moment of stupidity. He and I were elected together in 2000. I, I like John a lot. He's genuinely a good, good man. Uh, he's a good patriot, good Canadian. Uh, he's, you know, he's in politics for the right reasons. However, when he was appointed minister to China, you remember the context. The context was he was minister of immigration, and he was he's not a great communicator. He's a smart guy, but he's, he's not a good communicator. But immigration was clearly could well be an issue, and they were a bit anxious about John being the principal spokesperson. So let's put him to China at a time when, again, um, and I know this is true, that in, in 2017, the Liberals were considering announcing formal talks of having a free trade agreement, uh, a conversation with China, that sort of the status quo relationship, Donald Trump may be pushing us away, but we've got other options. We've got Canada, Europe, we've got CPTPP. We're going to have greater engagement with China. We're going to send John McCallum, the senior minister over there. He's going to be our guy. And sort of the, the, the DMRA engagement sort of view of China that everything is moving forward is going to be the case. So this will be an easy, good rapprochement. We'll announce free trade talks. And it took, it, it moved, the conversation really was, it took Australia 10 years to get a free trade agreement with China. Maybe it'll take Canada two, two to five years, and maybe we'll have something done for the next election. And then here we are now, 18 months later, and man, have the wheels come off. Um, so that's why, you know, these kind of high-level diplomatic appointments are, you really have to be very, very thoughtful with who you appoint and what their capacities are um, so you don't get into these moments. So basically, you know, horrible communicator, and I think that's kind of exactly what happened. You know, he just sort of rambling and said a bunch of dumb things, and now he had to fall on a sword. But I think you disagree, Jeff. Yeah, so here's the alternative theory. And again, I don't know what's true or what's not. But the alternative theory is that what McCallum was doing was entirely on script. That essentially what you have is a long history, particularly with liberals and liberal governments, of having this kind of wink-nudge special relationship with China. And what McCallum may actually have been trying to do is back-channel our quiet support of China over and above our alliance with the U.S. And the reason why I kind of suspect that is because I had this absolutely great conversation with David Mulroney, who was 
the ambassador to China for Canada between 2009 and 2012. He was there during some really interesting times. He was there, you know, as the global optimism about China started to really turn and sour. You know, you remember 10 years ago, up until fairly recently, there was a fundamental assumption that, you know, as China's economy grew and, and the country became more powerful and wealthy, that its political culture would loosen up and it would become, you know, more of a of a standard player in, in the global diplomatic game, essentially. And what we've and actually seen is... Ex- no, it's, it, it turned out to be exactly wrong. <laughs> it turned out to be as their, as their economy grew and they grew more powerful... They became even more totalitarian. They clamped down more on their citizens and they became much more aggressive on foreign policy. And Mulroney was kind of there for that shift. But we talked about more than that. We also talked about why Canada seems to have this ongoing kind of deluded view of our relationship with China as the world sort of wakes up to the fact that China may not actually be all that nice. I have to ask about your response to the McCallum quotes. Obviously, McCallum laid out Ms. Meng's defense for her in front of a bunch of Chinese media. What do you think is going on there? I was flabbergasted at what he said, where he said it, how he said it. The whole thing seemed to be uh, a, a public relations disaster for Canada. And I can only think that it was a, just a, a, a serious, serious mistake. Do you think it was a mistake on McCallum's part or do you think that he was directed to do it? I've thought carefully about that. I just can't see how anyone could think that doing it that way and having the ambassador say those things could in any way help us. If they wanted to send a message, which I doubt, because the message would be, I hope, we're following correct procedures, you can phone somebody, you can speak to somebody, not have it just, you know, ooze out in that chaotic way. And also, it was very bizarre, I found, that he gave those remarks to only to Chinese language media, right? Like that, that's almost like he was trying to get away with something. It, it seems very bizarre to me. Well, that's one possibility. It may be that he agreed to something that he didn't completely understand, which is also bizarre and and potentially troubling, because as a a senior official, he should be aware of who's organizing things, what what the agenda is. And it it looked that he he didn't. He he sort of stumbled into that, which makes it even more worrying. Let's step back for a minute. Let's talk about... um... Uh, Canada's sort of history with China. Is there a, a very cold notes version that you can give to explain sort of what's happened between the two countries basically from like the 1960s to now? So we pride ourselves uh, on being, you know, an early partner to China. We had wheat sales in the 60s uh, under uh, Pierre Trudeau. We established diplomatic relations. And this is a, particularly under the Liberals. There's a sense of a, a special partnership that you know existed under uh, Prime Minister Chrétien to a certain extent under under Prime Minister Martin, and that led, I think, to um, a warm but often uncritical uh, appreciation of China. The, there was an attempt to sort of say, well, you know, the, the Conservatives under Harper were the opposite. I think they started out, and I think the Prime Minister Harper started out as as a skeptic for for some good reasons. But um, for most of his time as prime minister, he had a fairly balanced relationship. That is, let's look at the good things that come from a relationship with China, including, you know, all of the economic things, but let's be aware of some of the risks. I think that's a a balanced view that we need to to get back to in some way. So you're pointing out that there seems to be an affection for China that seems to be rooted in the partisan big L liberal DNA. Yes, and I, I think it's it's a, an affection for China that exists in many places. Um, I'm a Catholic, and I follow what the Vatican does very closely. Pope Francis 
is someone who is afflicted with that uh, vision too. There's a romantic association with China as a country, and you, you'll have heard this phrase, that has pulled hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. It's, it has done that. It, it is a more prosperous country than it was. But we also forget that China is one of the, the only remaining dictatorship from the 20th century. You know, the, the, the Nazis were defeated. The Soviets sort of went away, although they, you know, they have had, I think, a reappearance under Putin. But the the Chinese Communist Party has the deaths of tens of millions of its citizens on its hands. It's never been held accountable. It has tried to transform itself, but it's it's the same governing line from the beginning. And it, it's got a very, very disturbing history. Where do you think that romantic notion actually comes from? Where is it rooted? China has always benefited from uh, a tendency in the West to see the China that we want to see rather than the China that is. Chinese are very, very successful at playing to our vanities, uh, at encouraging us to see that. Uh, and it has some real successes that tend to blind us to the failure. So China's very real economic success, particularly when the rest of the world was suffering through the economic crisis, can help to, to sort of perpetuate that, that myth that everything about China is good, that the, the, the entire structure is sound. That is starting to change. And this is what's most disturbing, I think, about some of the McCallum comments and some of the, uh, some of the approaches to China that we've seen from, from Justin Trudeau. As the rest of the world begins to reappraise what's happening, and that's, you know, that's happening right up to today. The Australians have a person who's been detained. The Swedes have had a couple of detentions that they've worked through. The Americans are revisiting the relationship. We seem stuck in this old vision of having a wonderful relationship with China. If we could just overlook some of these hiccups and, and minor embarrassments and get back to it, all would be good. We're stuck in that vision when we need people to see China as it is and, and to think about you know, where we go in a world in which China is much more powerful and you know, we're so closely linked to it for reasons of you know, the economy and our prosperity. We're in a situation now where we have two Canadian citizens who are detained, presumably. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. ...under pretty awful conditions. Mung's court situation is ongoing. And of course, you know, we don't really have any control over, over that outcome in the government. And uh, there was also the case of the other um, Canadian citizen whose life imprisonment was turned into a death sentence with virtually no due process. Where does Canada go from here? Well, in many respects, we're, we're experiencing um, a vulnerability that has always been there. We have lots and lots of Canadians in China at any one time, and China's a preferred uh, tool for dealing with countries like Canada, the, the countries that care about their citizens, is to detain them. And let's not forget, we've had Canadians detained before. So uh, the way forward is, is not easy. 
in these particular cases, building international support, making it clear to the Chinese that um, it's not business as usual while those Canadians are imprisoned and while we have uh, Mr. Schellenberg facing uh, this, this death penalty that seems to have been arbitrarily imposed. But we're not very good at that. You know, we had a parliamentary delegation visit China you know, just after after New Year's saying, um, you know, we want to keep up the dialogue and keep things going. We've had these confusing statements from the ambassador. We've got to do a better job of being consistent in our messaging. Not that we're doing what China's doing, which is pounding the table and threatening, but making it very clear that it's the relationship is not a, a sort of in its normal phase. Our primary concern is getting our Canadians back and that we will work with others to reflect and think about China's tactics in the world and how responsible countries work responsibly to uh, to counteract it. And that China is susceptible to. It's going to take some time, but it's about the only course we have open to us. Oppo is also brought to you in part by HelloFresh. Each week, fresh pre-measured ingredients and easy-to-follow picture recipe cards are delivered to your door in a special insulated box so that you can cook for your person or people. Spend less time meal planning and grocery shopping so you can get back to doing more of what you love, being on Twitter. Most meals come together in 30 minutes, call for less than two pots and pans, and require minimal cleanup. Ideal home cooking. Make family dinners stress-free with kid-tested family plan recipes. Ooh. So Justin, I've received a couple of these kits, and to be honest, I find them to be totally fantastic, particularly when you have little ones running around. The last thing I have time to do is pack up my kid, take him to the grocery store, and have him knock over absolutely everything and scream at me. Being able to have someone just deliver a box filled with food right to my door, it's one better than takeout because it's like fresh food that you make yourself and actually can feel good about. You know, as far as I'm concerned, they really are cheaper than groceries half the time, especially when you get 50% off your first box of HelloFresh. Visit hellofresh.ca slash oppo50 and enter OPPO50. That was really helpful. You know, I actually, Mulroney was there for some of the most interesting times, like you said. He was there kind of the exact moment Harper was oscillating between being super tough on China and super critical about their human rights record to basically scurrying off to Beijing to ask for your more trade opportunities. And it, it feels like such a repetitive story in Canadian history, watching the Canadian government go back and forth between trying to be tough on China and trying to be China's best friend, trying to be the China whisperer. And... You know, it's so funny to watch Trudeau almost do it in reverse. He came into office uh, basically saying we're going to, you know, talk about a free trade agreement with Beijing. And then now he's fallen completely on his ass. And now we're in one of the worst diplomatic spats we've ever had with China and Kingdom in history. You know, his father was the one to recognize the Chinese government, one of the first countries to do so almost a full decade before America did. Fast forward to the Kretchen era, you know, Kretchen and the liberals in opposition started talking about how we need to sanction China over Tiananmen Square. Came into government, did exactly the opposite, gutted, uh, you know, Canadian criticism of Beijing's human rights record, and even voted to, uh, you know, allow them into the UN and basically fucked over Taiwan. Stephen Harper, exact same fucking story, you know, came into government saying we're going to be tough on China, human rights come first, and then he goes over to China to hug pandas. He even, and I think... It's so weird that we forget this. I had to really dig to find evidence that this happened. But Stephen Harper like was on CCTV, the Chinese state broadcaster, to introduce a Toronto Maple Leafs game and like was sitting there, you know, talking nice about the Chinese government while you know millions of average folks were waiting to watch a hockey game. It is just so repetitive. I mean, th this cycle is just we cannot break out of it. 
Well, no, let's let's not say it's there are some differences. One, every single Canadian government is going to struggle with how to sort of maintain an economic relationship with this rising global superpower while trying to also maintain its its, its sovereignty and independence and a certain degree of, of, of diplomatic distance and, and the ability also to criticize China on certain important files. And this is something that, you know, every single government has struggled with recently, basically since the 90s, I would say. And it's going to be a problem that future governments, regardless of partisan stripe, are going to continue to struggle with. There is no right line on China. I do have a suspicion that Harper and the Harper government on this particular file was a little bit more clear-eyed about its approach. I don't think yeah. that the Harper people or the conservatives had any kind of prevailing romantic notions about China. They were pretty clear-eyed about what was going on, and they saw the, the necessity of building an economic dialogue, but they didn't have a lot of good feelings about China. I think that's very different from what we're seeing from the liberals traditionally. Yeah, I think you're totally right. Actually, when I was when I was chatting with James Moore, the word he kept using about their time in government was basically that the relationship was transactional, right? Like yeah, that it was, yeah. yeah, there was a back and forth on economic issues and when issues came up, but there was no real broad strategy there. It was largely transactional. You know, the, the, the Canada-China relationship has largely been that way. Because still, you know, between two-thirds and three-quarters of all of Canada's exports go to the United States. China's our second-largest trading partner, but it's, it's a pretty massive gap between the business that we do with the United States and the business that we do with China. Um, and transactions like the CNOC-Nexon deal or, you know, other transactions, uh, investment cases came before cabinet. They were really kind of dealt with on a one-off basis. Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was a sort of a legend of the American Senate from the state of New York, he used to say that foreign policy is a science of single instances, which is to say it's no science at all. Yeah, I think he's kind of right. And I actually do kind of like the Harper strategy there. Yeah, it, it is actually one of the foreign policy strategies where you have to credit Harper. And also, I mean, in stark contrast, it really does seem like the liberal government can't get it right on foreign strategy from India to Saudi Arabia to China. This government seems to be face flopping into one diplomatic brouhaha after another. And I think what's so interesting is that Trudeau talked this great game when he was coming into office about how they're going to be champions for human rights. And, you know, he's kind of the new leader of the of the moral globalist world. Except yeah, he's that, not, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Just so clear, nobody takes him seriously. Is that at all? What's so funny is that he didn't even pick this fight, right? Like, I would almost have way more respect for the prime minister if he was the one to decide to kind of poke China in the eye and say, you know, we're going to stand up for the Uyghur minority who are facing ethnic persecution. We're going to stand up for the Tibetan diaspora who are being surveilled and, and, and persecuted by the Chinese government. But no, we felt ass first into this whole thing by arresting a Chinese executive. And, you know, basically we let China pick the fight with us. This is <laughs> this is awful. This is like really incompetence. I'm going to kind of defend the liberal government on this one. I'm not sure that they had a choice not to arrest Wang Zhou. I don't buy the argument, which was recently in an op-ed in, in The Globe that suggested that we should have said the wink nudge tipped off Wang Zhou that this was about to happen and encouraged her out. I don't think that that would have been an appropriate thing for us to do to our number one allies, the Americans, nor do I think that that would have been fair or good dealing on behalf of the Canadians. I actually think that we were probably doomed into this mess. What concerns me is that as the sort of alliance of Western powers starts to fray and crumble, um, increasingly Canada is the poor orphan child that doesn't seem to have 
the strong alliances required. Like, we really should have the Americans standing up for us and trying to help us in a much more aggressive and public way to get our citizens out of arrest. Oh, totally agree. And, and I think really the, the, the issue, what, what Trudeau failed at, was the strategy after the fact. Like, I don't think we really had a, you know, a choice not to follow through on the extradition request or the arrest request. I mean, we had to do it. I mean, to not do so would have been just a wild affront to, to Washington, honestly. And I don't think that was really in the cards. And I think it could have fucked up the whole extradition treaty going forward. What we should have done is actually just had a plan in place for what to do after the arrest. It's almost as though Trudeau was shocked when China went apeshit over this. I mean, we should have seen this coming. This is how China operates. I mean, when we do something that they don't like, they retaliate. I mean, this. Well, and of course, they did almost the identical things with the Garretts in 2014. Exactly. You know, basically, the Chinese government hacked into the National Research Council and stole seemingly a whole bunch of sensitive information from the Canadian government and also fucked up the service for quite some time. And when the Harper government uh, attributed that hack to the Chinese government, they retaliated by arresting Canadian citizens. And, and it was actually great to talk to James Moore about this because he was industry minister at the time of the hack. And he was around the table when they decided to attribute this to the Chinese government, which was pretty unprecedented. Yeah, I remember getting a call and in you know, a panicked voice saying, you know, it's, we've been hacked, servers are down, a bit of chaos, because it acts like a hub and spoke with a lot of Canada's U15 research universities. And it was, you know, caused a real meltdown for about three months. And a very quick investigation, they said, yeah, it's from China. And we named that. We said this is, a, this is a, an attack. And it wasn't some rogue actor. It was, it was a state-sponsored attack from China on the National Research Council of Canada. I mean, for, for lack of a better phrase, this is how they do business. And this is how they often act. That was the big conversation a couple of years ago, and it's only gotten worse. You know, Chinese state hacking has gotten way more prevalent. And of course, now we're basically in the middle of a spat with the giant Chinese telecom, Huawei, trying to get into the 5G market. Now, Justin, I'll admit that my understanding of this whole situation with Huawei is, is pretty limited, but I do notice that now I go to airports or I hang out in Calgary and I'm seeing these giant Huawei billboards everywhere telling me to buy these Chinese-made phones. And I got to be honest with you, I'm like, fuck no. Because how in the world do I know that the Chinese haven't planted some tiny little microchip in that shit to spy on everything I do? Yeah, I mean, you don't. And this is the, the ultimate concern about the 5G network. If we give, you know, basically the largest Chinese telecom access to our 5G network, which by many accounts is less secure than the 4G and 3G networks currently are, we are opening ourselves up to a potentially a crazy level of surveillance. I mean, you know, the Chinese government is incredibly hungry for uh, industrial secrets from both the US and Canada. And then they have gone after some of that technological information with industrial sabotage and through hacking. Um, we know for a fact that the Chinese government uh, went to great lengths to steal secrets about the F-35 program using someone based in Vancouver. I mean, you know, this is not a conspiracy. They consistently do this. In fact, James Moore told me this really, really good story about basically some chief of staff to, to Harper warning Trudeau about exactly this problem. Without naming names, I mean, there's a story in Ottawa that was legend about, you know, you know, in the United States, there's that thing where the party president writes a note to the incoming president and leaves it on the desk. That actually happens in Canada, too, in some circumstances, and I'm told that that happens with chiefs of staff uh, to the prime minister's office. And one of, the, one of the things that was written in the transition from one government to another was, and it was meant in full you know, sincerity, was you know, a list of comments of do's and don'ts of, in, a, in a sort of a cordial way. And then you know, in, the, in the PS was, just remember, China knows, hears, and listens to everything that is going on. Basically, China is always listening, and there's a lot to gain from being able to listen to the Prime Minister's phone calls, and letting them into the 5G network would give them potentially a backdoor to do exactly that. 
correct me if I'm wrong, and Twitter will, of course, as always, correct me if I'm wrong, but like my understanding is that Canada is really the only major Western country that's even considered letting Huawei in. Yeah, I mean, Australia, in advice of their own spy agency, basically made the decision to block Huawei. And by all accounts, that is a very good decision. Australia has always been a, a, an interest for China. And, you know, if you gave them the keys to the palace, I mean, at that point, all bets are off. I mean, there's there's no industrial secret that's going to be safe. Uh, you know, there's no diplomatic decision that's not going to have clear visibility from China. And I think to some degree it's delaying the inevitable. China is uh, spending an obscene amount of money on uh, industrial research, on improving its spy apparatus. If Canada is indeed the only country, uh, once again, that raises some real questions for me. Just how clear-eyed is our foreign affairs department on China and the risks it poses to our you know, our sovereignty, our ability to conduct our affairs privately, particularly as we, you know, become more and more vulnerable to them economically. Well, we may yet ban Huawei from being a part of the 5G network, and I, I sincerely hope we do, because I think that is really the only option here on the table. But again, like you're right, there's no long-term strategy here. It's sort of it's sort of just addressing things as they come up. And you saw that, you know, with the proposed Acon takeover that the government was sort of happy with, and then backpedaled on after several months of sort of being beaten up on it. I mean, there is a lot to be lost here, and it doesn't seem the Trudeau government is fully aware of those risks until well, well too late. I mean, you know, they decided to join the Asian Infrastructure Bank which is basically a China-run entity. And, you know, we're not getting the returns we expected to see from it. And we may well be financing basically China's Belt Road Initiative, which is just building client states throughout the developing world for, for Beijing, which is going to fuck us over in the long run. So do we have a strong and intelligent foreign policy uh, situation with China, or are we China's useful idiots? That, I think, is the prevailing question of this entire situation that this diplomatic mess has brought up. I think Trudeau gets uh, big marks on one thing, and it's, it's, it's a really big thing. It's a clause in the new NAFTA, uh, which basically says that if any party to the agreement decides to go forward with a free trade agreement with China, they have to get at least acknowledgement from the other parties, and there needs to be a conversation in North America about that. And I actually think that is a really good thing. Trudeau got beaten up for it at the time, and I think that was totally wrong. I think it's actually a great part of the agreement. And, and it actually, James Moore basically gave Trudeau a D on everything China, but recognized that that uh, in and of itself was actually quite a big victory. You know, look, uh, exports have gone up. Um, you know, we do have access to the Chinese market in some ways. You know, I, I provide a D as opposed to an F. I mean, it's, you know, if you, if you get straight Ds, you're probably not moving on to the next grade in any event. So it's, a, you know, yeah, is what it is. But look, yeah, I, I think Justin Trudeau on this file and a lot of files came into it just sort of assuming, you know, there's a phrase that sort of trips off the tongue very easily where people just say, let's just have evidence-based governing. Let's just have evidence-based governing because, you know, if this, therefore that, therefore this, you know, and, and it's particularly with, with matters of state-to-state -state relations. As I said, you know, it's a science of single instances. There's nuance, there's culture, there's a dynamic. And I really think that if you ask the Justin Trudeau today and the Justin Trudeau of four years ago when he was making sort of very self-righteous, glib and breathy statements about Canada's relationship with the world and some of his early Davos speeches even, um, that he would look back at those speeches and think, my God, was I stupid. My God, was I out of touch. Like, my God, was I... You know, this is like, you know, it, it's nonsense. You know, you can't approach foreign policy like you're delivering a TED talk. You have to be smart and tough and clear headed and understand that these things are not black and white. It's black and white in a thousand shades of gray. Well, that's it for Oppo. We'll be back in two weeks. Get in touch at oppo at candlelandshow.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook at OppoCast. Let us know what you think. 
And remember that your hate mail only makes us stronger. Wow. Commons is back next week. The latest episode takes a look at the business behind hockey in Canada, and it ain't pretty. This episode was produced by David Crosby for Canada Land Media. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Theme music by Nathan Burley. I have the last word this week, and that word is piss. The word Roger Stone used in an interview on ABC this week, where he said he expects to be acquitted and vindicated, and obviously, he won't be. Due to the fact that I expect to be acquitted and vindicated, uh, and that my attorneys, including Bruce Rogow, one of the very best attorneys in the country, Grant Smith, uh, Rob Bouchelle, and Tara Kempion, believe that this uh, indictment is thin as piss on a rock. So uh, I'm prepared to fight for my life. I have to go to the. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.